Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the details of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. What do I got for you today? Today we're going to be talking about the escalation in the Middle East and why exactly it happens, uh, not just from the Israeli side, but from the, the Muslim world side. We'll talk about France reshuffling its position on the global stage, and we'll be talking about Russia and China demonstrating the power of industry. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have Chad's, uh, the country of Chad, which is located in the almost smack dab in the middle of Africa. Chad's minister of reconciliation, uh, Abderrahman Kulamala. There we go. Abdera, Ab- Abderrahman Kulamala. There we go. Uh, the minister of reconciliation has made a deal with the political opposition, allowing uh, success Masra, that's his name, success Masra, and other exiles from Masra's political party to return to the country after they were, uh, you know, forced to leave due to polit- the political climate changing, uh, not so much to their favor. A lot of countries in Africa have had this issue with trying to democratize, where they'll democratize a little bit, there'll be a lot of corruption involved, the corruption will uh, warrant uh, military coup of the the civilian government and then the military sticks around for a while either sticks around for a while or they they try to go back to democracy and the process the cycle sort of repeats itself uh likely with lots of foreign intervention maintaining that cycle uh primarily from the u.s and britain and france the major colonial powers in this region although mostly u.s france and but Britain's there as well. And I bring them up because, well, the French have tried to maintain their empire, even without their empire, ever since World War II. And we saw the, if you remember back during the summer of this year, all those uprisings, if you will, against the French in Niger and then Gabon and then other smaller sort of reciprocal uh what's the word what's the word is it because there were there was a coup in gabon there was a coup in niger there there was already military juntas in charge of burkina faso and mali which were also french colonies but like there was a lot of anti-colonial sentiment that sort of exploded following that coup in niger overthrowing the well pro-French, pro-colonial government in Niger. And then the the smaller one that happened in Gabon uh, a month or two later. They've been trying to maintain their influence in Africa. The British have been trying to do the same throughout their uh, former empire, and up to and including the United States. Uh, and the United States has been acting like an empire since World War II as well. And we've been tr- trying to disrupt and prevent countries from dis- developing and getting their shit together so that we can maintain control through division and keeping other people down. And unfortunately, that's how the U.S. has operated for a long time. It's not that it's in our interests. Some people will go out of their way 
uh, will go, will they'll go out on a limb and say that, oh, it's in America's interest to do this. Well, no, it's, it's, it's really not. It doesn't have anything to do with us. It's more so these are the ambitions of the people who happen to be running the United States. They don't want to see other countries developing. They don't want to see other countries doing well for themselves because it creates new centers of power and new centers of power makes it hard to control things because then you have to control each center of power. They want a fixed pie and they want larger slices of that fixed pie. And that's the imperial mindset. And it's something that we fought against in our own war of independence and that a lot of countries now are fighting against. Uh, and we see that primarily take the shape of anti-Western sentiments because it is primarily Western colonial powers that they're rebelling against. Uh, again, namely Britain, France, United States. But here, uh, and uh, oh, I just got on a tangent, but yeah, those three countries are uh, use very covert but very effective means of disrupting and dismantling countries. Uh, well, sometimes dismantling, but usually disrupting and keeping these countries off kilter and off balance and keeping them from properly getting their shit together, which is why you see the, this cycle sort of plague Africa, where they'll try to democratize, uh, you get massive corruption from the guy who wins the election, the military comes in <laughs> to remove the, the corrupt oligarchs that manifested themselves as a result of Western influences because we made them what they were uh, granted it's not like they were the best of people to begin with but bad people can do good things when forced into a good framework and good people can do bad things when put in a bad framework it's all about how you run your gun your country how your government is uh, designed to function we come in and we mess things up and you get this cycle and this, this cycle of disruption and chaos, which leads to per, almost permanent military occupations of these countries by themselves. Like if your military is constantly running your country, you're under, you're occupying yourself, which is a, a good thing and a bad thing because well, you prefer to occupy yourself than to some, for someone else to occupy you. But it's not very conducive towards uh, democratic institutions it's not conducive towards consent of the governed uh, these are some of the ideals that we have in our country and it's not conducive towards the types of governments that some of these peoples in these countries want they want democracy not all of them all right let's not pretend some of them would be fine <laughs> with the military staying in power because that's when they have stability. Some of them would be fine with a monarchy. Some of them would be fine with a number of other different government types. So uh, I'm not going to be naive enough to say that democracy is the only thing that they want. And democracy is the, the logical end result of everything. Everything has to move towards democracy. Uh, well, that'd be nice, but let's let's be real here. People want different things. But they have been trying to democratize. And it just, this cycle of chaos instigated by the former colonial powers doesn't allow that to happen in a real way. And it's rare that it does happen. And you see it with Ethiopia. We were backing the Tigrayans in that war because they just finished the civil war fighting against Tigray. They finished fighting their civil war. Sudan is in another civil war right off the heels of their last civil war. 
uh, and that fighting is uh, ongoing. It's sort of in the background because uh, the oxygen gets sucked out the room by things like Ukraine and Palestine, but they are fighting a war right now. You have Chad. They were they had a, their own conflict, and their military came into power. I believe what was it last year? Because I I think we very briefly touched up on their military coming about. Now that I'm thinking about it, but yeah, lots of chaos in Africa. The military comes in, but as the multipolar world comes in, I'm starting to notice just just a handful of African countries starting to play a a bigger, more stable role in global affairs. Well, regional affairs at the bare at the bare minimum. And that's sort of creating an anchor for Africa, an anchor of stability. Look, uh, some of those anchors being Egypt, Ethiopia, kind of South Africa, kind of. It's it's still about a 60-40 with them. But they are a part of the BRICS, so that, there's that. And Morocco, because uh, you can't count Libya. <laughs> Libya is in a, in a war half of Africa is under their the military occupation of themselves and what's left is either in a bush war with some militia group in the the back country of the jungles or is uninvolved there's a very slim number of African countries that have enough of their shit together for us to say that they have their shit together but the countries that do are big and strong and they are sort of anchors of stability from which money and investment are going to flow in as we can see with egypt as we can see really with ethiopia with the the belt and road and the completion of the renaissance dam that's going to be a game changer in east africa but it's going to take sedan not trying to kill itself to see that you have the what was it the east african community right, right the east african community which is has goals of becoming a federation that the congo is now a part of huge potential they have two coastlines courtesy of congo's very very slim uh access to the atlantic coast but it's there all right it's there so you could in theory build a, a rail line or a rail link or just a basic road running from coast to coast and that would facilitate trade that'd be a, a means of bypassing having to go all the way around the horn of africa not the Horn of Africa, uh, the Cape of Good Hope. So there, there's potential there. Like there is potential manifesting itself slowly but surely. But uh, again, going back to that cycle of chaos, that really gets in the way. But things like this, where you see the, the military allowing the, poli- the political opposition in Chad to return from exile, well, there's still the struggle to carry on carrying on. And it, for all my uh, my ranting, it is good to see. It is good to see. Uh, we have Myanmar conducting raids into the, the countryside against these militias opposed to the military rule. If you remember back, it, was it two, three years ago? Uh, when they had their election, uh, the military accused the uh, San Suu Kyi, that was the, the presidential candidate back then, and her party of cheating in the election, and they, they locked her <laughs> They locked her up and the military took control of the country again. Uh, This was supposed to be the re-democratization of Myanmar, but they have accused her of cheating. So what I just went over with Africa is now uh, applied here in Myanmar, 
where that cycle of uh, chaos, now whether or not that chaos is being sponsored by the former colonial powers, uh, if I had to guess, if I were to say yes, and I had to guess which one, it would be Britain, because Myanmar used to be a part of Britain's empire, but I'm not, enti- I'm not entirely sure on this one. Uh, but what I said about Africa is true here in Myanmar as well, where they try to democratize and then the, the corruption comes in, the military retakes control because it doesn't trust the civilian government. And then the cycle continues of trying to get another election uh, and then they allow the election. Yeah. It's a bad cycle to fall into. It's a really bad cycle to fall into. And it legitimizes, it very much legitimizes uh, alternative forms of government from uh, democracy. And it's one of the reasons why people, the founding fathers, didn't want us to be a democracy. They wanted us to be a republic. So you you bypass some of the, the obvious shortfalls of uh, democracy. Now, granted, corruption <laughs> corruption is a shortfall that uh, befalls us all at some point. Uh, but yeah. So Myanmar is fighting... Uh, what can be described as a civil war slash insurgency right now in the countryside. You know, they're a mountainous and jungly country, so it's there's plenty of places for an insurgency to hide. Sorry, that, that's what they're up to right now. Uh, from what I've understood, they still haven't released San Suu Kyi or a lot of her party leaders, because you know, they've basically accused her of committing treason against the country. So, yeah, that, that's going on in Myanmar. We have... Big floods in northern Australia. Uh, apparently, an entire air an entire airstrip got submerged in water. So uh, there goes the relief effort. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, it, the flooding in Australia doesn't get as bad as what happened in Pakistan. Like, oh my God! Uh, you remember back? Uh, what was like literally around this time last year when Pakistan was having those those biblical floods? And I'm just like, I don't know what you did. I don't remember you doing anything, quite frankly, but I don't know what you did, but you pissed off God. You pissed off Allah. You best get on your knees and apologize for whatever it was you did. You, I don't know what it was, all right? But Pakistan just, uh, they got something very much undeserved from, from my perspective, all right? I did not see uh, Pakistan being submerged in water, a third of Pakistan being submerged in water, being, uh, you know, that was not on my bingo cards for, <laughs> for 2022. All right. But yeah, hopefully the flooding doesn't get that bad in Australia. And uh, now big news, big news is Panama. Then the small nation, the small but consequential nation state of Panama is cutting down on canal crossings because they have a drought and they need the water elsewhere, so the, the water isn't there to, you know, keep sending ships across the canal. Because the canal is not just a, a line through, straight through the country, it's actually more of a, a series of dikes, uh, not the insult, but the, <laughs> the engineering. Uh, it's a series of dikes where you go in, it's sort of like a, a sort of like a, a step staircase of boxes, right? And each box is going to be flooded with water. It's actually really, really interesting because like you, 
you sail your boat in from say the Gulf of Mexico, right? The door opens up to the first box. So where the water is in the first box is gonna be level with the water outside in the Gulf of Mexico, you go in, right? The door closes behind you. It's, it's a really, really big box, all right? Cause it's big. It has to fit these gargantuan has cargo ships uh, as they go. So the door closes behind you and then they pour water in to the box so that the ship rises with uh, the artificially uh, increased sea level. And then they open another door to the second box and the second, the water level in the second box uh, is level to where they just raised the water in the first box. Then, so then you, you sail the boat from the first box into the second and then they, they do the same process. They close the doors, there is the water. You, now you're level with the water level. Now the, the water in the second box is now level with the water in the third box the door opens up you go into the third box and so on and so you basically go in, um on a hump through by doing this you can take a boat o over a, a slight incline if you will across land by doing it like this it's really really interesting because i always thought it was just we actually sat there and dug a trench through <laughs> panama uh, but it's uh, it turns out it's more interesting than that but uh side stories aside panama's cutting down on canal crossings uh because of the drought because you know it's a drought they need the water so the water is not going to be there for the, the canals what this means is that fewer fewer ships are going to be able to make the trip i believe the number was about 25 a day now um uh, so that's about one an hour uh, well, a little over one one an hour, but really one every hour. That means shipping costs are going to go up. Uh, any shipping that has to go through the Panama Canal, so anything from the eastern seaboard looking to go to Asia, is either going to have to go or either going to have to go through the Northwest Passage through the ice up by in Canada. They're going to have to go around South America the long way, like we the old-fashioned way, <laughs> if you remember before the transcontinental railroad when the panama canal existed you had to sail around south america to get to california now goods from the eastern seaboard of the united states and from europe if they're if they're trying to go to east asia and they they would have otherwise traversed the panama canal now they have to go the long way around um because again only 25 ships a day are able to make this crossing and every day that, that ship is at sea is money that you're losing because you have to pay for that so Shipping costs are going to go up either due to rerouting or due to increased waiting times. That's going to have negative effects on the global economy, but this isn't sort of a, a sabotage as much as it's just a natural unfortunate event. N not a disaster, but an unfortunate event. And hopefully Panama is able to manage the drought and they, they don't have people dying from thirst. Because that's the priority if you're Panama. Like, you have to keep your people safe and then you can worry about then you can afford to worry about the global shipping lanes even though you, you are home to one of the most important global shipping lanes in the world uh but yeah so good luck to panama all right take care of your people and hope to see you uh, get the get the canal back up and running <laughs> you know we, we kind of need that uh, but yeah uh, and last we'll we'll just touch upon Russia making advances around Avdeevka, the city of Avdeevka, which is to the north of Bakhmut, but still in the eastern parts of Ukraine. Uh, 
the war was the war is very much in its final act uh, i've said as much i made the episode saying that ukraine's tragedy is entering its final act that's where we're at that's where we're at because Avdeyevka has been hyped up as almost a Bakhmut-like defensive position for the Ukrainians, and yet the Russians are making advances here way faster, way faster than they did at Bakhmut. And that's, one, because they've learned how to do these things and how to handle these situations. Two, because they have more munitions on their side that they can actually, that they have more artillery to dump on the Ukrainians' heads they have more forces available because they, they've they've juiced up their force in Ukraine to somewhere north of 300,000 uh, since last year. Uh, uh, dang, we're almost at the end of 2023. So, But since 2022, they've juiced up their, their forces in Ukraine to are somewhere above 300,000 based on estimates I've heard. And so now they have more men available. They have more artillery available. They have more shells available. They can fire more at the ukrainian positions they've learned uh how to fight an urban how to fight in an urban conflict in modern war uh both through their some of their experiences in syria because there was primarily an air campaign in syria but they've, they've learned that they they have been there they have forces in syria uh, alongside iranian militias and the syrian army but they've they've learned they've been learning so that that's one reason they're better equipped there's more men but not just uh, increased advantages to russia it's actually on top of that the the ukrainians are working with less and less and less and less right because the ukrainians have been fighting this war right alongside the russians they have learned a thing or two as well but we're not going to be able to really see that in action because they just don't have the equipment like and it's the the talk is that Ukraine funding from the United States is going to run out by the end of the year unless there's a new aid package. And well, Zelensky visited America, and there's no aid package. All right, he he wasn't even allowed to go to Congress. He tried he tried to set up like a a private deal with Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, after Kevin McCarthy got ousted. He tried to get a, a private deal with him because uh, nobody in Congress wanted to see him. Like, they, they barely wanted to see him the, the last time he came, uh, what, a, a few months ago? Like, this, the, the, the trips are getting more frequent, but uh, uh, the sentiment here has turned sharply against him, even to the point that our, uh, these people in our Congress that were sucking his gawk three seconds ago uh, don't want anything to do with him anymore. So... We appreciate Congress finally catching up to what the, the right position is, you know, better late than never, right? Unless you're Ukrainian, but that's what it is. America has turned away from Ukraine and even the staunchest of Ukraine hawks have almost, almost, keyword almost, almost no choice but to give up on the Ukraine project and on trying to fight this proxy war against Russia and Ukraine. There's just no political will to do it anymore. And the political pressure has mounted since the summer of 2022, right up to now, where the majority of Americans don't want any more aid to Ukraine. And that itself has caught up to the politicians, uh, uh, you know, that um, 
there is pressure, right? There is pressure that Americans do put on their politicians, not as much as it should be, right? Uh, they should feel what we feel a lot more. But uh, beyond that, the pressure that we've applied, as well as Ukraine failing in its counteroffensive, have really just been two nails in the coffin that are probably going to successfully deny Ukraine its money. I say it's money as if it belonged to Ukraine. But, but uh, yeah, no. It's not happening. It's not happening anymore. Spe- like so many people who are on board that in Congress have been disillusioned because he lost after five that five-month-long great counteroffensive. Well, they're like, okay, well, perhaps this isn't the, the best investment, the, the best money we've ever spent, you know, like Lindsey Graham. Maybe... Maybe this isn't the best investment ever, like, like I Patch McGee said. You know. Yeah, and it's a good realization to come to. And again, better late than never, unless you're Ukrainian. But that's where it is. He came to America trying to get trying to get money and aid, and it's not going to come. It's just not going to come. And without that, the funding that we've already given him hundreds of billions of dollars is going to run out by the end of this year which says a lot this is a hell of a lot considering that 200 billion is bigger than the economy of a lot of countries okay 200 billion is like four years well no about three years there we go 200 billion is three years worth of Russia's military expenditure. And they've blown through it like that. And they're going to collapse without it. This is the state that Ukraine is in. And this is the reason why we're seeing Avdeyevka fall faster than Bakhmut. Uh, not like a, a lightning campaign. Oh, the city's going to fall tomorrow. No, no. But the telltale signs that the Russians are going to take the city have been manifesting themselves a lot faster than they did with Bakhmut, where it was a lot slower. It went on for just about a year from the moment that the the first uh, Wagner troops arrived at the city to when they really hunkered down back in August and September of 2022, right up until May of 2023, when they finally captured the city. And Ukraine sort of never conceded that they lost Bakhmut. And they say, oh, well, we hold these these two buildings uh, that are technically a part of the city, so we, we haven't lost. It's like, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> but that took a year. Bakhmut took a year. Uh, and like six months of dedicated military effort on the part of the Russians, because Wagner got there first, they tried to take it, uh, and it took the reinforcement of, of Wagner by the proper Russian uh, army to really capture the city. Avdeyevka is falling a lot faster than that. I don't think it's going to take a whole year to take Avdeyevka. Not at the rate that they're... Uh, they've already sort of put the pincer around the city. And they're now there's now reports that the Russians are moving into Avdeyevka. Right? And the, the street fighting has begun. That's that didn't happen for months with Bakhmut. That did not happen for months with Bakhmut. They're going to lose Avdeyevka, and Avdeyevka is another key position in Ukraine's defensive line. 
And if they get drawn into another meat grinder in Avdeyevka, which the Russians have every incentive to draw them into, right? Especially since they, they know the Ukrainians are going to feed men into the grinder. They're, they're, the Ukrainians, there's a story right now circulating about uh, uh, Klinky, uh, this uh, Klinky, I believe that's the name of it, this beachhead that the Ukrainians have on the western bank, so that's the Russian side, of the Dnieper River down in Kherson. Because it's, it's strange because the Dnieper sort of is wavy and it goes, you know, but down in Kherson, where the Russians have captured territory that is on the river, the Ukrainians have a beachhead down there, and the Russians haven't pushed them out of the beachhead. They've just opted to sit there bombing them with artillery. And the Ukrainians keep feeding men into this grinder. The Russians know that the Ukrainians are just going to keep doing this, and they, they just bleed them across the entire front. And these are just examples that we know of. Bakhmut, Avdeyevka, uh, Mariupol, now Klinky, apparently. Kherson, you remember how the Kherson offensive was stopped in its tracks before the Russians fell back? And the, the Ukrainians are losing thousands of men a day? We These are just the examples we know of. Russia sits there bombarding the Ukrainians, bleeding them dry, and now we're seeing the result of that almost two years later, Ukraine is running out of men. The average age is 43. The average age of the Ukrainian soldier is 43. And yet these publications want to sit there and lie and, <laughs> and say that they've only taken 70,000 deaths. It's like, okay, okay, sure. But this is the end game. This is the end game for Ukraine. And it'll be interesting to watch and compare the fall of Avdeevka because we know it's going to fall. It'll be interesting to watch and compare the fall of Avdeevka to the fall of Bakhmut, especially looking at the timetable and the losses. Because Ukraine lost nearly 100,000 men in Bakhmut. They lost 80,000 on the low end, right? It'll be interesting to see what the losses are in Avdeevka, especially if they get drawn into another meat grinder. Yes, yes. But I believe that's all the rapid-fire news. So we'll just... Uh, shift over to the meat of this episode <clears throat> and so for the first topic we'll start with uh israel palestine and really take a, a sort of step back from israel palestine there is news but it's sort of more we're watching the trend for what the major topics are going to be and so as this goes on as obviously the death tally in gaza continues to rise uh, surpassing probably nineteen thousand by now and making its way well towards 20,000, which is really bad for Israel because the higher that number goes, the more likely it is that Israel will get a regional intervention against them. And the danger, uh, as me being the observer here, is that I am observing a way in which that's going to happen, uh, a different way than I thought it may have earlier on because I was on the assumption back when I was making my initial assessments about the war, Hamas's aims, and how Hamas may actually achieve those aims, courtesy of Israel's response, uh, those aims being the cancellation of the normalization talks uh, between Arabia and Israel, and a regional sympathy for Palestine that ultimately results in a Palestinian state. 
which if the Israelis are not agreeable to, will mean a military intervention against Palestine to achieve that Palestinian state. Because none of these refugees want to leave Palestine and none of the countries that they're leaving to want them. The Egyptians don't want this. The Jordanese don't want it. Lebanon doesn't want it. Syria doesn't want it. Uh, well, yeah, Syria doesn't want it. None of these countries want Palestinian refugees in their countries. They want the Palestinians in Palestine. They have every incentive, therefore, to intervene to keep the Palestinians in Palestine, whereas the Israelis are going out of their way to try to eject the entire population of Palestine from Palestine. That's their goal. Their Israel's win condition is ethnic cleansing. Palestine's win condition, and looking primarily at Hamas, is a regional intervention against Israel to stop the ethnic cleansing. It, that's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at. And I said it from the beginning. But the way in which I envisioned that regional intervention against Israel was sort of like, like a video game, or I'll admit, my fault here was thinking about it in terms of like a, like a video game, or like, say, Napoleon, when the, the new coalition, every new coalition would get formed against him, and they'd all go into war together. You know, that's how I was looking at this, right? Where if Israel sort of steps over that line, they do the big ground defensive into Gaza, which they, they haven't done, they, they've kept their operations uh, minimal, right minimal not the not necessarily the air campaign but their ground operations minimal they've done that but because they've avoided the big offensive they've avoided offending everyone else big time and they've warded off the consequences that would have come with a a full ground invasion of gaza for the time being you know it could it could be that the second i upload this episode they'll uh, I'll just look at the news tomorrow when I wake up and go, oh yeah, Israel just conducted a massive full-scale invasion of Gaza to try to finish Hamas. We're going to finish them off once and for all. And it's like, oh, okay, well, there, there goes yesterday's analysis. So now I have to just eat that loss real quick. You know, it's a possibility. It wouldn't be the first time that happened to me. But I was looking at this from the perspective of they go in, they, they cross that red line, and then uh, their neighbors in whatever configuration, spe whatever specific neighbor collection, uh, uh, whether, whether it be Turkey, Egypt, Iran, or uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, or uh, Arabia, Turkey, Iran, Egypt, or, uh, all of them, or, you know, Jordan, Hezbollah, Lebanon, Syria, you know, wh whatever configuration it would be, I figured that once Israel crossed that red line, all of those countries within the coalition would go to war simultaneously, and it would be a, a really bad day to be an Israeli. That's how I was envisioning this. But observing the events as I have, because I found I find that that's a really efficient way of getting context uh, for these situations, and is a really good way of steering clear of the pitfalls of being um, too zoomed in to the crisis. I observed that this could actually be more of a waterfall type thing where individual actors on this regional stage come in and start attacking Israel from one angle or another for their own reasons and then they just don't stop. 
Now, last week, I talked about the Houthis and how they started drone striking Israeli ships, Israeli uh, freight in shipping containers moving through the Red Sea. Now, for those who don't know, if you get your maps, you go to Africa, uh, you see Africa, you see Saudi Arabia, that body of water between Africa and Saudi Arabia, that's the Red Sea, right? And if you look at where Yemen is, straight to the, the southwest, so to speak, not the west, the southeast, there we go, of Saudi Arabia, Yemen is right where the Red Sea sort of tightens up into the there's a name for the straits but it's i do not have it memorized i'll be honest i do not, it's something i'll uh, uh, da, da, da. I, I butchered that really badly but i'm just going to call it the straits of djibouti because djibouti is right there and it's it's easier to name you can find djibouti on a map because it's right there it's right it's right across from yemen so the straits of djibouti just like the the straits of hormuz to the north uh, where you see the uae sort of spiking towards Iran, that little narrow gap, that little narrow passageway. These areas are choke poles. These are choke points that are easy to close off even in a, a de facto way. Because make no mistake, the Houthis have not put a naval blockade up to prevent shipping from moving through this passage. They've just started drone striking and drone bombing Israeli shipping specifically. So we also see... Uh, the, the way in which drones have in, impacted the ability to control trade flows, which is another thing that is new for the usage of drones. We haven't seen drones used in this way before to control shipping lanes. That's new, right? And it's kamikaze. And from my understanding, they're using kamikaze drones as well. They're just, they just have really big bombs on them. And if you're attacking a, a cargo ship, the cargo ship can't fight it back. So they just have to eat that loss. And by bombing these cargo ships, even without doing much significant damage, like they'll, they'll bomb the ship. They've captured a couple of them uh, with the, you know, speed, the speedboat tactic where you swarm it with a bunch of speedboats. You come in like a Somali pirate and you take the boat back to your, you know. The same way the Iranians do the U.S. Navy when we move in too close to their waters. The same way that the Somali pirates do it whenever a cargo ship gets close enough. You know, doing it that way, really low-tech but effective, they're changing the game of global shipping. Like, we, used, we were talking uh, about a year or two ago when we first observed Iranian and Israelis shooting at each other's shipping. And we were looking at that. And I suppose that what's happening with Yemen and Israel now is sort of a, a, a natural extension of what we had already witnessed. Where the Israelis were bombing Iranian shipping, the Iranians were seizing Israeli ships, and now the Houthis have just joined in on the party at a really bad moment in time for Israel. Using some of the latest technology, drones, and other tried and true methods of getting control of a ship to just swarm it and, and steal it these are what they've done and by doing it this way you have not necessarily harmed the trade flows of everyone 
right? Because if you put up a blockade, you're inconveniencing everyone. You've only attacked the Israeli ships, meaning that only shipping going to Israel has to worry about being attacked. Now, that's still a decent number of ships, but that disincentivizes everyone else from intervening on Israel's behalf to, to try to stop this. Because quite frankly, no one has the wherewithal to stop the Houthis uh, aside from uh, maybe America. Like, no one can, no one's going to stop them. No one's going to stop them, and no one wants to stop them. Which is sort of my next point here, now after assessing and, you know, uh, refreshing the memory about how the Houthis have been doing this and how this is actually a, an extension of what we saw between Israel and Iran for years now. With the Houthis bombing uh, our Israeli shipping in the way that they are and seizing a couple of ships, uh, we have, we have the, the U.S. and Britain sending warships to try to stop this. And they have shot down a, a number of these drones. But the damage has kind of already been done. Shipping it doesn't feel safe. Ships don't feel safe traversing the Red Sea if they're going to Israel or if they're coming from Israel. They're going, they're going around Africa. They're going around Africa through the Mediterranean. If, they, if they're coming into Israel from, say, the east, like India, uh, Arabia, or China, Indonesia, what's, what have you. If they're coming from there, going to Israel, they're going around Africa now. That hurts Israel economically because they have, they have to foot the bill for that if it's their ships and other countries trying to do trade with Israel have to foot that bill to avoid the drama caused by the Houthis. I mean that they're going to be more incentivized to just do trade with someone else to find other customers for these goods. That hurts. So Yemen, specifically the Houthis we're talking about, has found a new angle to attack Israel on an economic front without even attacking Israel itself, not really. They're attacking ships in the Red Sea. And no one's going to stop them. Because there's there's been a lot in primarily American news media about how oh, everything's an Iranian proxy now, if you've noticed. Oh, the Iran-backed militias in Syria. Iran-backed militias. Oh, Iran and its proxies. Iran and its proxies. Everything's an Iranian proxy now. <laughs> and that, that that's them building the narrative for us to go to war with Iran. Which, and technically the Houthis could be classified as that. They are certainly backed by Iran. Oh, Iran-backed Houthis bomb these ships. But uh, Iran-backed does not necessarily mean Iran-controlled. And this is a key distinction. Iran-backed does not mean Iran-controlled. Iran does not... Iran backs a lot of people in the region. Hezbollah and, yeah, and the Houthis included, with those being the, the two biggest names that I can mention. But they do not control Hezbollah. They do, and they certainly don't control the Houthis. And what the Houthis have done has, again, opened my eyes to the possibility of another way in which this coalition against Israel could manifest itself. And manifest is my, my new favorite word, if you noticed. 
but they've opened my eyes to an another way in which this can happen. And I think it's a more realistic way and for Israel, a more dangerous way because it's more organic and natural. Certain actors on this regional stage just start attacking Israel out of convenience for their own reasons. And no one compels them to stop because Iran, for, for all the talk in America about we need to go get at Iran, we need to take Iran out of the oil bin, Iran this and Iran that, all the slant for all the slander we've been putting on Iran's name, they have actually been is one of Israel's uh, best friends in this conflict, uh, inadvertently, ironically, even because they, along with the Arabians, the uh, Qatar, the UAE and, and Egypt, they have those five countries have been working round the clock, especially the Arabians with the Saudis in a close second. Uh, well, I say the Arabians, especially the Iranians and the Saudis in a close second. They've been working round the clock 24-7 since this war began, trying to keep the fighting contained to just Israel and Palestine. They've been doing that since day one of this latest round of fighting, and they have been largely successful. Largely successful to their much, much to their credit, especially considering where they stand. They don't like Israel. They want Palestine to have sovereignty. That's where they stand. But their pri their primary goal is to keep the fighting contained and ultimately to snuff it out. You know, to, to they're trying to strangle a war is what they're trying to do. The, the cooperation of the Egyptians, the Arabians, Qatar and the UAE. Qatar has been sort of mediating deals between uh, Israel and various other organizations uh, or other organizations uh i just read an article talking about how israel is they they met a minister of was it was it hamas's leader i think it was hamas's leaders i'm not uh, i'm uh, i'm really trying to make sure i'm not um misreporting this but they met a delegation of Palestinians. I'll, I'll just say that. I think it was Hamas's leaders, but this this sort of uh, mediation, this talk was mediated by the by Qatar, and they met in Oslo. Uh, Oslo being uh, the capital of Norway. So uh, another a neutral country, a neutral mediator, and then you have is the head of Mozad. That's who it was. The head of Mozad is the Israeli intelligence service meeting with the heads of Hamas in Norway, and that whole ordeal was mediated by Qatar. So Qatar has been playing a role in trying to get the ceasefire. That that's the role that they've been playing with Arabia backing them. Iran has been trying to contain the conflict. Egypt has been helping out where it can. UAE has been helping out where it can and also trying to get a, another ceasefire going. So Iran's been working on conflict containment and Arabia, Egypt, Qatar, and the UAE have been working on conflict ending, right? So it's been a a back-to-back um, -back effort, right? They've been piggybacking off of each other, trying to build off of each other. Iran containing the conflict and through exercising what influence it has over Hezbollah, over Hamas, over other militias in the region who would love 
to shoot them some Israelis. Like, there's a lot of bad blood going on. Iran is exercising its influence to keep that from uh, to keep that from going to its logical conclusion, and the rest have been trying to end the conflict by getting a ceasefire. They succeeded for a week. They're trying to get another one right now, and that's actually what uh, the head of Mo the head of Mossad and the the Palestinian uh, well Hamas leaders were there to discuss in Oslo. They were there to discuss another ceasefire. That's what they've been doing. But Iran can only exercise so much influence because the mistake that is uh, rather a deliberate mistake because it's not like I'm not going to act as though these people don't know this. These people in our government, these people in our intelligence services, they know Iran doesn't control all of these groups. If they control some of them, they certainly don't control all of these militias and all of these groups. Iran does not control Hezbollah. They're allied, but they that doesn't mean control. Iran does, uh, they really don't control the Houthis. The Houthis can do whatever the fuck they want. Iran just happens to back them in that case. It, so the, the, the field of control gets weaker the farther away from Iran you go, with the Houthis being uh, as far outside of that direct sphere of control as you can get while still being in Iran's sphere of influence. And the problem that Israel has here is, again, that there are limits to Iran's ability to control these allied partners. They cannot control Hezbollah. Hezbollah has been firing rockets, not to the same degree as they could, right? They, they, they could, ooh, they could ruin Israel's day in a heartbeat if they wanted to. They, they, they could. They could. They've just been firing missiles, keeping keeping the Israelis on guard, forcing them to continue expending their Iron Dome ammunition to take out a few hundred dollar rockets with multi-million dollar missiles. Uh, an economic attrition that the Israelis can't keep up. An industrial attrition that the Israelis are not going to be able to keep up with. They're already begging us for weapons. They're going to run out. And when they run out, when the reality, when the military realities change to such a degree, other options are going to light up on the other side. So when it becomes apparent that Israel no longer has the wherewithal to stop as many rockets from raining down on their own cities as they do now and as they did before the, the conflict began, this round of fighting, I should say, when that becomes apparent to everyone else, everyone else are going to start to get ideas. Oh, Israel doesn't have enough ammunition to stop all these rockets. Well, maybe I'll fire a rocket or two. Oh, I'll fire a rocket or two as well. And then more damage gets done to Israel. And, it's, and then that itself opens up new realities. And it's like, oh, okay, well, Israel's really, they're really getting messed up right now. I guess they're weak. Oh, Israel's weak. We Maybe we can go in. Maybe... Maybe we, maybe we, our militia, insert militia name here. Maybe we, maybe we can go attack the Israelis. You know, maybe we'll, we'll just do a cross-border raid. You know, you know, you know, in and out. You know, uh, you know, slam them and, and then run. And these things could happen. The problem for Israel 
is that Iran can only exercise so much control over these militias and over these allies that they have. And beyond that, the Iranians, uh, they, again, they cannot control these people. They cannot control Hezbollah. Hezbollah has been raining rockets down on Israel at a much slower pace than a lot of their fighters would like. But they've been doing it. But they've been constrained. They've been restrained. Iran is restraining them, not controlling. The Houthis have said, fuck restraint. We're just going to bomb Israeli shipping now. And the reason that that's significant is because it has all, all, not just opened my eyes to a, a, a way in which drones can be used and a way in which this thing can be escalated, uh, but it's it's the how the escalation happens. Because they just woke up one day and chose violence, right? They woke up one day and chose violence. There's a lot of public sentiment in a lot of these Arab and a lot of these Islamic countries to do something about the Israelis. The Houthis are doing something now. And it hurts. But the way in which I see this um, highlighting the possibility of escalation is because not only can no one stop them from doing it, and I, I mean no one. Arabia was, has been fighting a war against the Houthis for a, a decade now. They can't win that war, so they can't stop them. Oman is not even going to try. Iran could choose not to back the Houthis by giving them money and weapons, which they may ultimately do eventually at some point anyway. But that's not going to stop them. They, no one can stop the Houthis from doing what they're doing. So not only can no one stop them, but when I think about the motivations involved, no one has any incentive to stop them. No, none of their neighbors, none of the countries in this region either want to stop the Houthis from doing what they're doing. And those that may want to, you know, behind closed doors may want to stop the Houthis from bombing the shipping, Israeli shipping. They have no incentive to follow through on those desires because of the pressure put on them by their public. Because the public opinion in all these countries is we should be doing something about Palestine. We don't want their refugees. We want them to stay in Palestine. We are you just going to sit there and watch as a as a genocide occurs in, in Gaza? These are the things that are going through uh, the public circles in a lot of these majority Arab and majority Islamic countries. What are we going to do, especially the ones that are in the region and who have the ability to do something? What are you doing about Gaza is what they're saying to their governments. There is a lot of pressure to do something about Gaza, even as these governments are working round the clock to, one, stay out of the conflict, and two, to end the conflict, to contain the conflict, to stay out first and foremost, to contain the conflict so it doesn't expand, and then to end the conflict so they stop having, so they don't have to worry about it. But the Houthis have now entered the fray. No one can stop them, and even if they could, most countries don't want to, and the ones that would want to stop them have no incentive to stop. There's no incentive. You what you're, because think about the optics of that. You're gonna stop. You're gonna intervene against the Houthis on behalf of Israel. Why would you do that? 
the, the Houthis are attacking the infidels. The, the Houthis are attacking these, these genocidal maniacs who are killing Palestinian civilians in Gaza. They're doing something about this crisis. They're, ta- they're putting the hurt on these people. And you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna intervene against a, a fellow Arab, a, a fellow Islamic country to save the ass of Israel? No, none of, none of these countries are going to do that. Meaning, and if no one stops uh, the Houthis, then they're just going to continue. And that's how the escalation happens. Because it's not just the Houthis who have incentives to do this. A lot of in rogue actors have incentives to, have, uh, not just incentives, but straight up bones to pick with Israel. And a lot of them are probably going to be thinking now about ways in which they can pick those bones. And once they start picking those bones, no one's going to stop them. If Hezbollah decides that they want to start dropping, they want to start doubling and tripling the number of rockets they're sending at Israel, who's going to stop them? No one. If And let's not even get into how Turkey is actively actively priming their population for a war with Israel right now. Uh, they're from not just the, the president, but members of the Turkish parliament. They're all, they're going all in on this war, right? They're trying, they're actively instigating a war. Turkey could just show up one day. And that's, that's what Erdogan has said. We could just show up one day and start bombing you, start shooting at you. Who's going to stop the Turks if they decide to do that? Because quite frankly, the only country in the region with the wherewithal to fight off the Turkish military would be the Iranians. They're not going to do that. And if the Turks show up, well, what incentive does Hezbollah have to continue being restrained when they have a really big and powerful ally that they have a border with saying, let's go in? Hezbollah is going to say, well, okay, we're going to go in. You go and you be the front and we'll be in the back. Every time they push the line, we'll, we have guerrilla warfare. We'll, we'll push them out with you. We'll, we'll fire the rockets. You, we'll, you'll use air bases here. It, it'll be a, a cooperative effort. If Turkey comes in, Hezbollah has no incentive to remain constrained. They have no incentive to continue being restrained in their response to Israel's actions in Gaza. So then that's multiple parties. And once they're in... There's no incentive for any of the countries trying to contain this conflict, trying to end this conflict. There's no incentive for any of them because they are Arab, because they're Islamic. They have no incentive to stop fellow Arab or fellow Muslim countries from intervening. And so the coalition builds over time rather than being an all at once thing. And that's the danger I've noticed with uh, what's happening with the Houthis. Uh, attacking Israel in the Red Sea. A very, uh, I would say small if it wasn't so significant. And from a strategic standpoint, ingenious, like if you're going to fight someone, fight them in a way that they can't fight you back. Israel has no way of fighting them back. Like they need America and Britain to bail them out. And we're, we may or may not be successful with that. It's a, a brilliant move from is one of Israel's uh, ops, if you will. Uh, but that's the danger I've noticed.
and the Houthis have opened my eyes to it in the way in which they've intervened and the way in which no one is going to stop them because no one has any incentive to. And then I realized that that would apply to literally everyone else in this region should anybody else intervene as well. I fear for the Israelis. I do fear. But look, you heard it here first on this podcast. I've been saying that they needed course correction a long time ago. This is part of the outcome of not doing that. So pray for Israel, uh, not necessarily that they win the war, uh, but pray that they get their heads screwed on right and start acting as if their lives depended on it because uh, they do. All they have to do is leave Gaza, right? All they have to do is leave Palestine because it's unrealistic. It's incredibly unrealistic to go, we want we want peace, we don't want this war, but we're not going to stop occupying your country. It's like, well, sure, sure, but you're never going to have that peace if you don't stop occupying their country. And the immediate go-to is that, oh, we'll just be attacked again because that's what uh, the Palestinians, that's what Hamas always does. And to be fair, that is what Hamas has done every time. So it, it's, an, it's a nasty cycle. It's another one of those nasty cycles, which I don't necessarily have the solution to. I'm not going to pretend like I do. But uh, what I can say is that bombing civilians in Gaza isn't going to help you. Uh, and and I'll, I'll leave it there. I will leave it there. But now we'll get into France, sort of trying to reshuffle its position on the global stage. Uh, trying. It's been a sort of an awkward thing to watch with some successes here and then others they've sort of blunted themselves because they don't have much coherence in what exactly they're trying to do but the direction is clear they're trying to position themselves for the multipolar world without trying to acknowledge the existence of the multipolar world or the, the existence of a strong russia of a, a strong china or of other sovereign nation states having a say in matters concerning them like it's been very awkward to watch for, for france uh, again we will we'll go back to niger and gabon and damn near all of sub-saharan well saharan africa actually not really sub-saharan but saharan africa where all these former all these former french colonies uh just breaking away and france getting into one squabble after the next which got really bad with with Niger economically not militarily the the French there, there was a danger for uh, about a good month and a half there of a, a broader war breaking out in Africa if you remember how the ECOWAS the e the economic co economic community there we go the economic community of West African states uh, it took me a minute uh, you remember how ECOWAS was threatening a military intervention against Niger if Niger didn't put the, the deposed president back to, into power, Mohamed Bazoum, if, if I'm remembering his name correctly. And the, the coup the, the coup leaders basically said, um, this is none of your business, <laughs> leave it alone. France was talking about doing uh, its own military intervention in Niger. How they were going to get there was uh, a mystery because Niger is a landlocked country and 
France has been just about kicked out of every other country <laughs> neighboring Niger, with Mali and Burkina Faso being two big ones to name. And of course, and then there was Mali, speaking of Mali and Burkina Faso, they were talking about how they, if there was an intervention against Niger, they would declare war on whoever it intervened. And there was a real possibility that this sort of um, this chain, this tangle of alliances that built up very rapidly. All right, it, it built up very rapidly. There was a, a danger that this uh, tangle of alliances could have sparked a broader regional war in Africa, and thankfully that was averted. Uh, that was averted. The the African Union was sort of there for a minute, saying you have uh, this deadline. You have until this deadline to reinstate the president. That passed, and ultimately Niger managed to call everyone's bluff. Uh, the French ambassador didn't want to leave the embassy. Um, there was a standoff there. Eventually, he left. So it got hot for a good minute there, and then it very much cooled off, thankfully, because we don't need another war. And uh, I suppose the French came to their senses a, at least a little bit. But now, uh, France, after being humbled by a, <laughs> a former colony, uh, now France is trying to reconfigure itself. They, they've gone back to their uh, pastime, if you will, of trying to reconfigure their geostrategic position, which is a good pastime to have, don't get me wrong. Like They will benefit from this in some way, shape, and form. It's just they would benefit more if it was a little more coherent. But nevertheless, France, uh, their president, Macron, has taken a trip to the nations of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And while in Kazakhstan, he signed deals on minerals and rare earth. Excuse me. So he got deals with them on minerals and rare earth. Now, take note. Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. These are important uh, because Kazakhstan <laughs> is the biggest uranium producer on the planet biggest uranium producer on the planet and uzbekistan is not exactly second but a a decent fifth right like it, kazakhstan produces 46 percent of the world's uranium the next runner up is namibia with 12 percent. canada has 10 percent. australia is nine percent and then uzbekistan is at seven percent Niger on the global stage produces 5%, which is about the same as Russia. Um, but remember, France got a lot of its uranium from Niger and Kazakhstan. But the thing with Niger, the thing with Niger uh, is that when things are getting hot between France and Niger, as they were having that standoff of the over the president and the coup, Niger decided, well, you've been sort of uh, getting our resources for almost for free for hundreds of years. Uh, well, I say hundreds. Well, kind of. I mean, 1800s, but over 100 years. You, you've you been getting our resources for free for over 100 years. So Niger raised the price of their uranium from 80 cents a kilogram in, in euros, 80 cents in euros. They raised it from 80 cents a kilogram to $200 a kilogram. 
France, uh, France can't afford that. Not at this moment in time, not when they're already struggling on energy because of Nord Stream being blown up. They can't afford that. So that's probably, and it's the, the threat of the economic warfare and the realization that they were going to lose to a tiny, le well, I can't say tiny, but they were going to lose to a, a landlocked country in Africa. <laughs> They're going to lose an economic war to a landlocked country in Africa that used to be their colony two seconds ago. That realization was probably very humbling, but now we see France learning and making adjustments because in response, uh, what seems to me to be an obvious response to almost being extorted <laughs> for the Niger's uranium, here they are, uh, the French president meeting in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And the fact that he's meeting them and, and then signing deals in, in Kazakhstan, at least, means that there's been sort of back-channel diplomacy going on uh, below the surface for months now leading up to this moment. So this is probably something that is that began almost as soon as this the the crisis in Niger began, which could have very easily manifested itself in the form of an energy crisis in France. And what better time to do that? It's it's December now. <laughs> very very good timing on the part of the French. So they they've gone to Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, the biggest producer of uranium, one of the biggest producers of uranium signing deals on minerals and rare earth at least with kazakhstan i'm not entirely sure if they have deals signed with uzbekistan but those are probably in the works as well so and of course them doing this came with all the usual propaganda oh central asia is moving further away from russia and and all these things even though kazakhstan in particular is moving closer to russia not farther away to the point where their industrial base is almost an extension of the Russian industrial base. They're a part of the Russian economic, the, the Eurasian Economic Union, which is Russia's sort of uh, customs union with former Soviet state members. And they're also a part of Russia's CST. Oh, they're definitely not going anywhere because Russia, Russia saved them from a, a, a color revolution back in 2021. Kazakhstan has moved closer to Russia, but I wouldn't even, I, you know, I'll just... I'll just leave that alone, right? You, you, if you're if you're even listening to this podcast, you're you're well aware of the the, the games that go on and the prop the mind games that they are attempted to play on the public of the world, namely than here in America, to try to get us to oh downplay Russia, but Russia's the most horrifying thing in the world. But they're so they're they're gonna conquer Europe, but they're so weak they they can't win in Ukraine, but they're gonna invade Poland. Um, but their military is weak and incompetent. Uh, they're on the verge of a civil war. They're going to collapse, but they're going to conquer all of Europe if we don't give money to Ukraine. It's so incoherent. And the same thing goes with China and, and oh, the all these other enemies of the United States. But yeah, France is trying to reconfigure itself. That And this is a, a major, I would say, victory in trying to do that by reconfiguring their trade. Because France is doing something that I say the Europeans really need to do. They use nuclear, right? Now, I would say use nuclear and coal because those are the resources that you have. France is going to have to get over their environmental lobby 
to get to the coal, but they have at least they have nuclear. At least they have nuclear. That's a, a, a huge step up from what the rest of Europe is working with. Uh, although the Germans are apparently building coal power plants at an uh, astonishing rate, which is going to be good for them in the long run because they have coal. So using energy sources that you have uh, that are available to yourself in your own country is a great first step for the health of the global economy because countries that are self-sufficient in resources well sure you get sort of reduced trade volumes in terms of oh this country isn't getting 80 percent of its energy from country x but you get much more stable global economies that way when more countries in the global economy are self-sufficient that's healthier for an economy to be self-sufficient and to to sell your export not to structure your entire economy around one thing one to three things and then sell everything uh, that you produce so that you can you can maybe get some money for development here and there and you know some countries are stuck in that position and they have no choice but let's call it what it is it's unhealthy and it's not something you want your economy to look like because the second you suffer hits to your sales uh you have an economic crisis and if you have an and if you're a major producer like arabia if arabia had issues producing oil the entire world would have an, a, a recession and this is the danger of globalization in that way globalization between self-sufficient nations is a much better economic reality from a, a global stability and from your own national sovereignty and national stability point of view uh then we're going to import all of our oil from this country we're going to import all, all of our minerals from these three countries over here we're going to export about 80 percent of the food we produce bro 80 percent of food we produce we're going to import our manufacturing we're going to import those we're going to you know it's free trade benefits people at the top very much and people at the bottom can they we can benefit from free trade don't get me wrong it is possible to it's just not healthy in the long run and it creates a lot of vulnerabilities which are painfully obvious when there's a crisis Oh no, the, uh, a cargo ship turns sideways in the Suez Canal. Global trade comes to a halt. Well, okay, we were getting 80% of our goods from that country, and now um, all of those ships that we were getting have to either go around Africa or they have to wait for <laughs> this, this ship to be turned right in the Suez Canal. So we're fucked for the time being. And these are these are vulnerabilities that come with global trade, which is why I advocate for self-sufficiency. So you're you're you create a, a sort of higher baseline, like the the floor in which your economy can just crash down. You can you can raise that floor so that the economy doesn't crash too far, so that you you just fall back into being a third world nation. It's like well, okay, that was perhaps a bad move, but yeah, France. <laughs> is trying to reconfigure itself on the global stage. They, they're using resources that they have, which is, again, I couldn't advocate for doing that more. And what they need, they're importing from big exporters. Now, perhaps if they're smart, 
they will use these improved trade relations, the, these these connections that they've just built up in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, uh, but especially Kazakhstan, to sort of lean in to rebuilding relations with Russia. At the v look, look, France would benefit immensely from doing that. France will benefit from doing that, especially if they're the first European nation to do it. Uh, if they're the first to do it, they get all they get the first come first serve benefits, because Lord knows Hungary is just itching. Hungary is just itching for that that Russian pipeline direct into their country, like like a like a dope hit that just never ends. Hungary is waiting. If France is able to overcome the the the, the the propaganda barrier. If they're able to, if they're able to overcome the politics of it, they can use these relations they just built in Kazakhstan to improve the relations with Russia, and get perhaps raw materials deals and investment deals from the Russians, which the French can use to benefit their own economy. It works out both ways, and especially when you look at how all these all these Western companies have left Russia and aren't doing trade with Russia anymore. That means that you have an opportunity to let yourself back in the door if you if you negotiate that deal with the Russians. Now you can take advantage, the same as Russian companies and businesses are doing, of the gap left by all these other European and American businesses that are no longer doing business in Russia. All these goods that the Russians used to get from Europe and United States, they're no longer getting from Europe and United States. You could put yourself in there. It's massive opportunities, massive opportunities. Will they be able to take advantage of it? I'm not entirely sure. Not, not entirely sure. But what I am sure of is that this move here between France and Kazakhstan is meant deliberately to cover France's ass from what happened with Niger. Because they were getting about 20% of their uranium from Niger, which is huge. All right. 20% of their stuff came from Niger. Twenty, uh, About 20% came from Uzbekistan. 27% of their uranium came from Kazakhstan. They are integrating, they're interfacing with Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, their other two largest uh, importers, uh, the, the, my mistake, their other two largest suppliers of uranium to get more uranium to fill the gap left by Niger as much as they can. I think I don't think they want to touch that $200 a kilogram price tag for Niger's uranium. They're not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And so the Kazakhstanis and the Uzbek and the Uzbeks win and the French win because they get uranium. So yeah, that's happening here. Good move. I believe that this is a W for France, right? They're reconfiguring themselves in the global stage. They have the potential to do really smart things. It's just a matter of will they take those opportunities. Uh, but like most other things in geopolitics, we will just have to wait and see. But now we'll get into the, the final topic of today's episode. And it's, I want to talk about the power of industry, right? Because when we look at Ukraine, we see an industrial war, right? And and what prompted me to, to even cover this is I, I saw a report saying that China's industrial output grew 6.6% in November year on year. And considering how 
big China's industry is 6.6% growth. Uh, well, uh, yeah, 6.7% growth in their industry is a huge deal. It's a very huge deal. They're the workshop of the world. And it just got me thinking about all these predictions of the collapse of China's economy and similar predictions being made about Russia's economy. Oh, they're, they're on the verge of collapse. Oh, it's going to collapse. Oh, they're any minute now, evergreen. Oh, the real estate sector in China is it's going to collapse. And the whole, the whole, the, the house of cards is going to come tumbling down and China's going to be wiped off the face of the map and which is going to be poor, broken, insolvent, which quite honestly sounds more like what's likely to happen in the United States. Uh, our real estate is uh, crashing down. We we've had multiple bank failures. <laughs> um, we are on track for Great Depression 2.0. And granted, we might drag the Chinese down with us, but the Chinese, on their own merits, aren't about to have an economic collapse. Like I'm sorry, that's just not in the car. And it, it's more than just me outgrowing. The whole oh we're gonna be we're gonna be afraid of China because China's the the real enemy China's the real threat I, I've sort of outgrown that in my political evolution and you guys know that by now I don't fear China what, what reason do I had to do that I fear stupid people in my country specifically in my government doing stupid things towards China that gets us into a war with them that's what I fear. But when looking at China's industry and seeing how the strength of their industrial sector has completely offset a, 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 a reeling retail uh, slash commercial real estate sector. Like, because don't get me wrong, China's real estate sector is uh, in a really bad shape. Anyone who's honest is going to tell you that. But the thing is that China's industrial sector, because China's economy isn't a, a, a fire economy, uh, not a finance, insurance, real estate. That's not the basis of China's economy. They have what I like to say, a flame economy. A flame economy. Ooh. Or, well, yeah, yeah. Free, freelance labor, agriculture, manufacturing, energy. If I have to break it down, because this is actually something that I would advocate for the United States having. Uh, but in advocating for it, I realized, oh, wait, the, the Chinese have, have built this for themselves as well. And, well, they, they've really just copied what and pasted what we did over the course of the 1800s and applied it to themselves to similar results. They have the flame economy, not the fire economy. They have freelance, they have labor, labor, they have agriculture. China's still a big agricultural producer, not the biggest, you know, and certainly not an, an exporter of much uh, other than say rice. But they, then again, they have a billion and a half people. So, you, you know, you can, you can excuse them on that. But they have a really, really powerful manufacturing sector and they have an, a large energy sector. It's just that their, and their industry is so in large. Because industry itself is an energy intensive thing, but they have so much of it that they just consume a lot of energy. And they, even with all the coal power plants that they have, and with all and the the coal mining job that they have to try to power the industry, 
they still need imports of cheap Russian natural gas and oil to sort of make the difference, uh, not just Russian natural gas, but Australian coal as well. And that makes them a powerhouse. It's the manufacturing sector that makes you a powerhouse because from manufacturing, everything else orbits, right? Well, if you have a manufacturing, well, that helps the energy sector, that helps the agricultural sector, that helps that helps the real estate sector because people are going to build cities and towns around where the factories are, right? People are going to produce food to supply the people who are working in the factories. People are going to be mining coal, not just for the sake of mining coal and exporting it, but they're mining coal and drilling for oil to the extent that China has oil. They're mining coal, they're drilling oil, they're extracting energy resources to power the industry. And as a result, you end up with these incredibly large numbers of uh, production, which get put to work in the factories more than anything else. China exports a little bit of what they of what they have in surplus, but a lot of it gets consumed in China because Chinese industry consumes these raw materials, these raw goods, these energy uh, resources, and turns that into everything that the world needs, which makes them an even bigger economic power, because now they're not just consumers of the resource, but they are producers. That's the power of industry. And with industry, especially with how big China's industrial sector is, even when an entire sector of their economy is faltering, they're the real estate sector, which is a big deal for a country of a billion and a half people. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, a floundering real estate sector isn't drag, it's a drag on the economy, but it's not dragging the entire economy down into a recession like what we had in 2008. And like what we're gonna have in about 2024, 2025. They're not having that. Not because uh, th there's not a real financial slash real estate crisis going on right now in China, but because the strength of their economy is centered on manufacturing, not real estate, not collecting rent off of people. It's on producing, production. That's the center of Chinese economy. And so long as they're producing things, so long as there's demand for the things that they produce, their economy can with withstand really big blows like this because again this is a really big blow to their economy their real estate sector is sort of uh imploding on itself for the time being in, in certain parts of the economy like i'm not, I'm not going to pretend like oh all the chinese are going to be homeless tomorrow you know all these alarmists who want you to fear china all day and night but then it's like okay well china's going to collapse any second now but it's uh, okay well, when you decide which story you're going to go with, then you can get back to me. But the strength of their manufacturing is so strong that they can have a, a, a mini recession within their within their economy, and it doesn't. They can still have economic growth. They can still have growth in their industrial output because the the industry is what drives the economy, not rent. And this is a major difference. And this is something that uh, doesn't get discussed enough when people speculate on a war between the United States and China, uh, particularly over Taiwan, the industrial capabilities of the country in which you're fighting this war with. But it also got me thinking about Russia as well, because China's not the only country with industry. We know that. But we've been talking a lot when we 
talk about Ukraine, about the success of Russia's reindustrialization. And thinking about industry and thinking about what it's done, not just for China, but for Russia. Russia had a, a sort of civilizational collapse in 1991 when the Soviet Union dissolved. And all these internal boundaries in the Soviet Union became national borders, which has been a, a pain and a bane of Russia's existence um, from a, a, a mindset point of view. Not, not that Russia couldn't have coexisted with all their new neighbors, which they were literally living with two seconds ago in the same country, but more so it, it weighs on them because a lot of Russians were now homeless because Russia was no longer the country that they were living in just overnight oh you're in ukraine now you're you're in georgia you're in kazakhstan now i said well okay well some of us can leave and go to russia others can't and that's the reason putin called it the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century uh which from a russian perspective uh it would be or at least one of them anyway russia had a really bad time in the 20th century but from that civilization level collapse where they lost uh, russia lost a third of its territory with the collapse of the soviet union and yet here they are having uh, 30 32 years later having reindustrialized to such a degree that they are out producing all of nato combined in every aspect of military production well, we, we talked about Ukraine earlier on in the, in the episode and how Ukraine just doesn't have anything left to fight with. Well, they're, they're running out and it's it gets worse by the second. And I, I saw one, I was listening to the Duran and they were talking about this one particular report, uh, which isn't reflective of the entire line, but is a, a, a peculiar incident where a, an artillery commander was complaining because he, he was firing his brigade was firing a thousand rounds a day but at one point in the war and now they were firing five a day five artillery rounds a day because you're rationing now again that's not going to be reflective of the entire line yet but that's a really bad sign especially considering that that guy if the duran bothered to bring him up is that guy was likely in a combat zone not just oh it's a, a quiet part of the front line we're only going to fire five shells today the russians will fire eight back you know just to let just to uh, let us know that they have more you know it's not an all quiet on the western front type situation they're getting hit with hundreds of russian shells a day if not thousands and you're putting up five which is a, a real warning to for the ukrainians because they don't have the production to keep up with the shells Europe doesn't almost doesn't have shell production like there's talk of Europe expanding its uh, production of uh, of uh, weapons and our uh, ammunition and the result of this because their industry has is so lacking in the capacity for this expansion that the price of a shell has gone up to about $8,000 a shell so you've made the ammunition more expensive without actually producing more ammunition it's it's uh, and and not like they were producing much to begin with the europeans like four thousand a month and we in the united states are we're doing a little better we're doing a little better but we have 
to a lesser degree, the same problem. We don't have the capacity to expand production of shells or really anything else. We're, we're just, the industry just isn't there, not without a mobilization. And that's what happens when you deindustrialize. But the Russians, <clears throat> excuse me, the Russians have reindustrialized and rebuilt their industry to such an extent that they can afford to fire 20,000 shells a day because that's the, the low end estimate for what they're able to fire, right? They're, they're consistently firing around 20,000 shells a day. They can bump that up to 40,000, uh, anywhere from 40,000 to 60,000 if they want to, but 20,000 shells a day is the sort of the, the floor for how many shells that they're firing. 20,000 a day. And the fact that they haven't run out of ammunition right now, because you can have really, really big stockpiles, but if we, we just take a moment to do the math here, we, we look at, at uh, 20,000. If we multiply that by 365, just one year, you'd need over 7 million shells for uh, uh, one year of combat where you're firing 20,000 a day. And we, you can just, and you can say, oh, some days they wouldn't be firing 20,000. Okay, well, we'll just stretch that out, divide that by, divide it by two, all right? You're still looking at uh, 7 million shells over two years. You would need 7 million shells spread out over two years to keep that going. Now, do I believe Russia would have those types of stockpiles? Yes, I do. But <laughs> but I don't think that they would they would run up the bill until the moment they ran out of shells. I think that they would keep the amount that they were firing at a rate roughly parallel to what they could what they knew they could get up to with production. Ugh. I think that they would keep the rate of fire something close somewhat close to what they knew they could produce, right? So they wouldn't be firing 20,000 if they didn't believe that they could start producing 20,000 rounds a day uh, with you know a little bit of time for their industry to catch up to the demand. I don't think they would be doing that. Meaning that the Russians are producing at least 20,000 shells a day. At least, because that, that, that's the floor, right? Because they, could be, they could, could be producing a lot more and let's not even... Uh, well, actually, let, no, let's do. Let's do think about how the Russian military has been expanding in the background uh, for the, the all of 2023. That's sort of been going on in the backdrop when talking about the great Ukrainian counteroffensive and how Ukraine's going to change the tide of the war. All the while, the Russians have been uh, undergoing not one but two mobilizations. Where they went through one in October, called up those reservists. They got... Uh, all 300,000 reservists, and they got almost 100,000 volunteers. Then in December, they called up more men. And if we assume that all the men who've joined the Russian military, because Putin just gave uh, another set of numbers saying that about 440,000 men joined Russia's armed services in 2023. If we assume that those are a part of that remilitarization mobilization wave back in, in December of 2022, where they called for half a million men. If we assume that these 440,000 men are a part of that mobilization and not additions to that mobilization, well, that would mean that Russia has almost met its goal for the December mobilization wave. In uh, It took about a year, but they've almost met that goal. 
and they're already sitting on a, a, a million man army from the 300,000 men that got ex, um, called up from the reserves back in October. Well, the 400,000, because they got volunteers as well. So they're, they're, they're already sitting on a, a more than million man army. And they have another half a million in volunteers. That's big. That's very big, because remember, they started with 750,000. And it's possible, it's entirely possible, that as this goes on, they'll just continue to accept more volunteers beyond their goals of expanding the Russian military by half a million men as a standing army now. This is big. This is big, because when you think about that expansion of the Russian military, that expansion needs to be armed and equipped and you need to, if you're going to train with the equipment properly, you have to be able to fire the gun, fire the artillery, fire the, the tank rounds, which means you need to produce these things. While you're at war, Russia's production is such that they can afford to do all of that without crashing their economy. They don't have the same issues. Uh, the cost of a shell in Russia is probably going down because they're expanding production. They're expanding capacity. And by doing that, they've outproduced all of NATO. Now they can sit there and th just throw shells at the Ukrainians. Like The, the big thing about this war, and uh, it's sort of stuck with me since uh, I came across Scott Ritter back in the summer of 2022, is when he said the, the the Ukrainians never saw a Russian. Whether they would get into these firefights, these artillery duels, people would die, they'd have to fall back and retreat. They never saw a Russian. Now, that's obviously not going to be true across the entire line. There is close quarters combats in certain parts of the line. But for a lot of the line, the front line, it is true. Where the Ukrainians don't see Russians, they see evidence of Russians. They see the uh, artillery rounds. They can hear the thunder of artillery in the background, and they can feel when that artillery lands, and they see the evidence that there are Russian soldiers because they see the bodies of their soldiers who died to the artillery fire. They see the evidence of Russian soldiers when they see drones flying over the sky. And drones... Let's not forget drones. Russia's producing drones now at rates uh, surpassing the Europeans in the United States. And, uh, of course, there all, there's all this cope going on about how, oh, they're, they're importing drones from North Korea and, and Iran, and, and, and that they wouldn't win without it. Well, okay, let's just, and let's just unpack that for a second. So what you're saying is that all of NATO lost to Iranian and North Korean drones. Yeah. Like when we really unpack some of the propaganda we're given, it really paints a goofy picture, doesn't it? But they're producing drones now. They're accepting the help that they get. Like don't even, they're accepting the help. They're not gonna say no. Like they, they, they're gonna take it. If the Iranians want to give them drones, they're gonna take it. If the North Koreans want to give them drones, they're gonna take it. But let's not pretend that the Russians don't have their own production. They're producing shells at rates we can't even fathom. They're producing uh, drones at rates that are out outstripping us. So they're producing tanks faster than all of NATO combined. They're producing armored vehicles faster than all of NATO combined. 
and they're not losing vehicles at these astonishing rates that the Ukrainians have managed to lose all these pieces of equipment. Well, you remember when the counteroffensive began and they just lost hundreds of armored vehicles. They lost at least 300 tanks, at least, and, and thousands of men. Russia isn't taking those kinds of losses at the same time that they're outproducing the country that is Ukraine. Industry is how Russia has won this war. Industry and really good strategy. But that strategy was predicated on Russian industry, being able to keep up with what they wanted. And now we look at, we can see on the battlefield the results of Russian industry and what that means in an industrial war. You still need industry to fight an industrial war. Look at Israel. They can't produce enough Iron Dome missiles to defend their own skies. Hamas can get as many of those little Scud uh, ballistic missile rockets that they want. I don't know if they're I don't know if they're actually Scud. I just called them Scud, but they they, they can get as many of these ballistic rockets as they want. Israel can't keep up with that. They don't have the industry to keep up with that. We don't have the industry to resupply them with enough to keep up with Hezbollah. Iran has the industry to fire as many rockets as they want. It, Russia and China have the industry to produce hypersonic missiles. We don't. We're, and from what I've heard, it's uh, partially a materials science issue that we don't have the industry uh, to, do, to get the materials, which is a really big problem because that suggests an entire layer of complexity that you we just don't have which if we're to believe that the north koreans have a hypersonic missile and we don't and, um wow but these are the things that we're looking at industry 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 like let's not forget that russia shrugged off a sanctions war a uh, uh, a full-scale sanctions attack on the Russian economy that plunged the ruble down for like a week and then the ruble recovered and became slightly stronger than it was prior to the sanctions and then the Russian economy shrunk by like almost a percent in 2022 and now here we are at the end of 2023 and, and Putin's talking about three and a half percent growth for the Russian economy, completely offsetting the loss before and outstripping their growth rate on top of that. The, the, the previous, the pre-sanctions growth rate of the Russian economy has been outstripped now by the, the post-sanctions Russian economy. Like that's the strength of the Russian industry right now. And if I sound like I'm glazing Russia right now, I, I'll be honest, I kind of am, but it's it's to drive home the point of the power of industry. This is these are things that wouldn't be possible without industry. Like we we take for granted industrialization, but we can see the results of having a strong manufacturing sector. This is why it's so important to have. This is why people used to kill for manufacturing back in the day. And then this is what made in the industrial revolution so potent cuz it made economies so much stronger. Like let's like thinking back to World War One and World War Two, especially World War Two, when industry was being bombed out. Like the German industry was being bombed mercilessly, 
and yet they were still able to fight the war to the bitter end. They were still producing tanks, still producing fighters, still producing guns and, uh, and, and ammunition right up until the very end, even while they were being flattened by uh, the, the U.S. and British bombing campaign. It, it's astounding. What, the level of resilience that a, a good manufacturing sector can give an economy, it's insane. And you're talking that, but with modern technology, and we're seeing what that's capable of where China can have an economic collapse in their, in their retail, well, I keep saying retail, but in their, their, their real estate, there we go. They, they have this collapse in their real estate sector, but their industry is growing by 6.6% year on year. Russia can have a, a whole sanctions war thrown at it and their, their currency becomes stronger. Their economy grows faster than it was prior to the, than it was growing prior to the sanctions. Like these miracles didn't just come out of nowhere. And let's also add to that, that Russia is, has done a mobilization where a, a million men are being added to the Russian military on top of an almost million man army to begin with, they had 750,000. So they're taking people out of the private sector and putting them into the military and the economy is still growing at three and a half percent. Uh, still growing at competitive rates to China, dare I say. <laughs> they're able to, and, and while they're being sanctioned, they can build pipeline after pipeline after pipeline around the world. While they're being sanctioned, they can go out and make deals with other countries to do uh, trade in local currencies and to purchase Russian oil. And, and while we're talking, when we're talking about sanctions, the Chinese are, are building infrastructure projects in other people's countries because they, they don't have shit to do in their own country, even while they have a, a collapse in the real estate sector. Like these miracles of economic activity don't just happen for no reason. Well, well some of them do, but they're not enabled <laughs> in a vacuum. They're enabled by industry. They are enabled by industry. Now, China, we can see the civilian side of that. Their, their civilian industry is what their uh, their industry is primarily being used for. And they're massive. They're huge. They are the workshop of the world. And with Russia, we can see what industry does for a military in the modern context. And it's every bit as impressive as it was before. In fact, it's even more impressive because Russia's population is uh, a smaller <laughs> They're, ter they're, they're missing a third of their territory. Like Russia, when it industrialized, both under the Russian Empire and under the Soviet Union, they had, they had all of Central Asia and Ukraine and the Baltics and parts of Belarus and Poland. They don't have any of that right now. And yet their industrialization has reached a point where they can afford to do all these things and have any up, an arguably almost as resilient economy as they had in the Soviet time when they were cut off from large parts of uh, global trade. And now they're a major global economic player because of this industry. It's huge. This is the power of industry. And this is uh, something that gets routinely ignored by all these people who talk about collapse, how Russia and China are going to collapse. Uh, any minute now, they're going to collapse. Uh, j just look, just look, uh, the, the, he's going to be deposed. 
Look at that. They're going to fall apart. And then it's going to be hunky-dory for America. And all these, none of that's going to happen. And it's because of industrialization. It's because of manufacturing. And what we can take away from this for ourselves is that, well, we want manufacturing in our own countries. Because why wouldn't we want the benefits that we can see on display for us in both the civilian and military realms? Manufacturing is a motherfucker. But if we're smart, we'll make that motherfucker ours. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. We're being reminded of the power of industry. But no matter how that world changes and no matter how industry changes the world, we will watch those changes together. And we'll have fun doing it. Now I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been watching, well, listening to This Week in Geopolitics. Until we meet again next Monday, servus.